Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town, although in that case, one earphone only, safety kids, I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. This is Matt Spiegel, and I can't wait to bring you Season 2 of the PBP, Voices of Baseball. The very best play-by-play voices in the game talk about their craft. It's a job so special that even Joe Buck told us he will probably go back to it. I'm 53, basically 54. I I think it's too early to say nevers at this point in my life. I think at some point I'll get the itch again. Incredible guests sharing great stories from your favorite teams coming this year. Find us on the Odyssey app or wherever you find podcasts. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Welcome into a bonus edition of Take Command. Craig Hoffman with you, no Logan Paulson for this one. As we're just going to share with you a couple of interviews that we did for the radio show. They both surround the story that dropped on ESPN.com this morning as we're recording this Thursday morning about Dan Snyder. The first is with one of the people who wrote it. Tisha Thompson is an investigative reporter for ESPN who does a phenomenal job, has been covering all of the congressional stuff and all the stadium stuff for ESPN regarding the commanders. And Tisha was very gracious with her time and so wanted to share that with you as background. And then I have a chat with Melanie Coburn, who is one of the women behind the Release the Report movement. Melanie worked for the Washington organization for 14 years in a variety of roles, saw a lot of bad stuff, uh, was kind of a victim to that toxic workplace. And then when she heard about and found out about the cheerleader videos that were reported on by the Washington Post, she and a couple of other folks, including Megan Imbert, made it their mission to find justice and accountability for not only those women, but for all those that were hurt in the commander's workplace. So... With that, let's start with the interview with Tisha, then move on to our interview with Melanie. It's not really a I hope you enjoy it kind of topic here, but uh, I hope that these are helpful and insightful in understanding the story. Our guest today is an investigative reporter for ESPN. She's one of the three authors of the 8,000-word story that came out this morning on ESPN.com about Dan Snyder. And for Tisha Thompson, who is based, uh, born, and raised in Washington, D.C., I'm sure, Tisha, this is what dreams are made of, is just spending endless amount of time reporting about Dan Snyder. Um, Jokes aside, thank you for coming on the show and uh, for talking to us about the work that you and your colleagues, Don Van Nata and Seth Wickersham, have been doing, because it's very important work. Of course. Thank you for having us. I mean, we have, all three of us, have been uh, asked repeatedly over and over again, especially in the last year, why does Dan Snyder still own the team? And that's what we were trying to do here is answer that question as best as we could, pulling on um, quite a few sources. I mean, we talked to more than 30 NFL owners high-ranking executives uh, at teams and in the league front offices. So this is us trying to get to the bottom of it. 
that premise is exactly what I have been trying to figure out. And obviously, I am not the only one. Uh, why is Dan Snyder still owner of this team? Because he seems to be bad for business in every way imaginable, which you guys lay out in immense detail in this story. And and as it starts uh, and kind of keeps coming back to you throughout, it seems like the league and the owners are petrified of Snyder. One source saying there are 31 owners that are petrified of Dan Snyder. As you guys started to report this, when did you kind of realize that that was the thread that kept reemerging? Well, I think I think what we discovered was that Snyder, according to sources that we've talked to, is telling people that he's using private investigators or his law firm is using private investigators um, and other sources to gather information on people. This was something that first came up during the congressional investigation um, earlier this summer. Folks may remember the same day that Goodell testified on Capitol Hill, Congress put out a, a pretty damning report about what it had found so far as part of its investigation. And that was partly that private investigators were showing up at the homes of, of former employees, including some of the cheerleaders. Uh, and that Snyder had, or his, his attorneys had put together um, what they called a shadow investigation. Uh, the team spokesperson has fought back against that. There was that letter last week, of course, that was saying, no, 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 we were putting information together um, about our, our minority owners. Um, so the, the idea that private investigators uh, would be used is out there. And there is a belief amongst the NFL owners, according to our sources, that as many as six owners, including Jerry Jones, the owner of the, of the Cowboys, um, have been targeted by private investigators. And this is according to things that Dan Snyder himself has said, according to his associates, um, who were, you know, and then we were told by sources that, that this is what he said. I just want to make it be clear. He could be bluffing. He may not have anything on these owners, but there's a belief amongst the owners that he has information potentially on other owners and, and the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell. Do you think, I mean, you guys referenced in the story, I think it was a 1400 uh, word statement that you received uh, from the team. Uh, and there's quotes in there from Ron Rivera and Jason Wright and the Snyders and team spokespeople. Like it is extensive and then, obviously, uh, John Brownlee, Snyder's lawyer, went on multiple shows last week, uh, radio shows, and uh, was incredibly aggressive uh, about some of the people that have been accusing him of creating a toxic workplace and, and whatever else has gone on. There's so many accusations. It's truly hard to wrap your arms around. Mm -hmm. Do you think that aggressiveness by Snyder's team, uh, his lawyers, the team itself, is in was in response to knowing that your reporting, uh, along with Seth and Dan, was coming? Only folks in Snyder's inner circle probably know that. I, I can't talk too much about the timing of how and when we did what we did, um, but I, I received that letter along with other reporters who received that letter. It was very targeted at the congressional investigation. I was struck when I read that letter about how it was uh, refuting much of what was reported in February and June. And, and like you, I was struck by why are we doing this now? Why didn't we do this in February and June? Um, I, I don't think it would be shocking to anyone to, to expect 
the congressional report to soon come out. Uh, the, the congresswoman who chairs the committee that's been investigating lost her primary. And so she's not going to be returning in January. This, you would think, would be something that she would want to wrap up and have done before she walks out the door. Um, that has a lot to do with it, I would think. Yeah, Tisha Thompson from ESPN is with us. Honestly, Tisha, that's what I thought was going to come today. I was like, they're playing on national TV tonight. They're the one. They're the biggest show in town. There's going to be something that drops today, and I think it would be very Congress to drop that report. <laughs> um, and you've been covering that report extensively. Instead, I woke up to eight thousand words from you and you and your colleagues. Mm-hmm. But what do you think? Like. What is the biggest threat? Because there is the Congress uh, side of this. There's the Mary Jo White investigation. There's continual press reporting. What do you think is the ultimate biggest threat to Snyder and his ownership of the commanders? Well, the thing that our reporting uncovered that I find particularly intriguing is the stadium. The stadium could end up being his biggest liability. And to understand that, you have to sort of go back in time is is you and me and everybody who lives here in D.C. and has covered this team has noted the stadium deals have all fallen apart. Um, The Maryland governor announced uh, in the spring that he wasn't going to get into a, you know, a bidding war uh, like they did in the old days to build FedEx field. Um, Even though I think it was about three years ago, the governor had publicly offered to try to help Snyder find land near the, the casino complex uh, to build a new stadium. Um, and Snyder turned that down, which shocked some owners. Um, so that deal fell apart. There's in D.C., uh, the chair of the D.C. Council, Phil Mendelssohn, uh, told me in an interview that he just wasn't going to support a stadium until if and when the NFL releases some form of a written report of what it did find about the team, because in his mind, that would be potentially abetting the abuse. That was his quote. And down in Virginia, that's a fascinating thing that happened down there. I I talked to several lawmakers um, who were ultimately in opposition to the stadium. And we put in public information requests. And let me tell you something. It was the voters. That stadium deal, the stadium authority bill that was going through the Virginia legislature was on the fast track. It had incredible bipartisan support. It had um, two of the most powerful people in the Virginia legislature uh, sponsoring that bill. It had the write-off by the governor, and it made it to what's called conference committee, and then it died in conference committee, which is a fairly unusual thing. And what happened was people began to write their lawmakers, both at the state house and in Prince William County, saying they, they didn't want this. They just did not want this stadium. Traffic was a big reason, but Dan Snyder specifically was named. I went through all these letters that we got through a public information request down in Virginia, and uh, one county supervisor down there did a survey and found that out of, I think it was more than 850 people, 85% of his voters said they did not want the stadium. So without public financing, because right now it doesn't look like Snyder's going to get public financing, he would probably most likely, and this is based on sourcing that we have from folks who know about this stuff, he probably most likely would need to take out a debt waiver 
because there's very specific rules in the NFL about how much debt you can take on. And he's already received just last year a waiver to take on extra debt to buy out his minority owners. And there are some owners who are contemplating potentially taking a vote on whether they would refuse to grant Snyder a waiver to build a stadium. And that's an easier vote for some owners, you know, voting on finances versus voting on whether someone should be an owner or not. Tisha Thompson from ESPN with us. That What's so fascinating about this story in totality is that each section in its own right would be a bombshell story, and the stadium part of it alone is so interesting and fascinating. And the fact that that might be uh, his biggest threat also leads to one of the possibilities mentioned at some point in the story, which is that they, he could transfer ownership to Tanya. And I wanted to ask about her role in this because obviously that's interesting because transferring from one Snyder to another doesn't change the finances. That still would potentially cause them problems in terms of having to sell from the family, not just getting Dan himself out of the way. But I do feel like sometimes Tanya gets a pass. She has been by his side the entire time. Um, I also really thought it was disgusting how the team weaponized her, uh, the fact that she survived breast cancer. as like, oh, you better leave Tanya alone. She's a breast cancer survivor. It's kind of gross, in my opinion. Uh, But what is Tanya's place? Like, what is she, how is she thought of amongst other NFL owners? And do you think it is viable for her to be the savior of the team through the lens of the Snyder family? Well, so there is, there is this, thinking amongst some owners based on our sourcing that a lot of the problems with the stadium could be solved if they did transfer ownership permanently to Tanya. Um, There is, for instance, the Sterling family as an example. He was removed from ownership, not by the league or the, or other owners. He was, he was removed by his wife who removed his name from the family trust. That's in our story. If you want to learn more about that. And then of course there's the Sarver situation where he has voluntarily under pressure given up ownership of his team. So there is this question of, well, if it transfers to Tanya, does that solve the NFL's problems? One of the things that I personally, like you, want to know is how women in power, including the the women who are on the oversight committee, feel about that. Um, I've got requests out to them now that the story is out there to get their take. Is that good enough? From the former employees who used to work there, is that good enough? Um, I think that's going to be other people's decisions to make. I'm just going to report on it. Um, Within NFL ownership, there was considerable frustration based on our sourcing, and this is in our story, by Tanya getting up and reading an apology in front of the other owners from her phone um, after the fine and it was levied against the team in July of 2021. She has been attending the meetings. We we have been able to confirm that she has been just, I think it was just two weeks ago, there were NFL committee meetings up um, in in New York, and she was in attendance at those meetings. So she is showing up as the owner. One of the more intriguing things that happened sort of uh, as we were going back and forth with the, the team spokesperson and the NFL uh, getting their responses was that the team is saying that Dan is allowed to come back and be an owner and he's choosing to let Tanya do it right now. Um, The NFL did not 
give us anything directly on the record uh, in response to that. Instead, they referred us to comments that Goodell has made uh, in recent months that he considers this to still be an ongoing investigation. Um, we've been told by sources with knowledge about thinking at NFL headquarters that that, that Goodell still thinks this is an ongoing investigation. Mary Jo White, who's looking at allegations directly against Snyder himself that came out during the congressional roundtable, uh, she has not issued her report yet. The congressional investigation is still going on. Those are examples of what Goodell himself has cited. But it's somewhat unclear whether Snyder uh, can start attending owners' meetings. What we do know is he has not um, since the the fine was levied against him. And the team was very uh, adamant that Jason Wright, the president of the team, has has created a, a culture where he can make the decisions and that Snyder doesn't need to get involved. Dan Snyder doesn't need to get involved. Um, but there, in our story, there's, there's some conversation about how much power does Wright really have. That has been a massive question that uh, I know just this past weekend, um, our Kevin Sheehan had heard that uh, the new uh, chief communications officer had been a hire that was made completely without Jason's knowledge uh, or input. And then Jason got on Twitter and was like, no, I led the process. Uh, there has been a lot of mixed bag comments about Jason, Wright, And there's also a question of power involving Ron Rivera. Uh, you guys talk about the Ryan Vermillion story in this uh, in this piece and the DEA investigation and who wanted to fire Vermillion, who didn't, who had the power to, who didn't. Obviously, Ron uh, won that power struggle if there was one. Uh, as you guys uh, say, sources are, are telling you that, that there was on some level that Jason wanted to move faster on that. What role do these two specifically have? Because I, I do think that there's a bit of like a, almost a sports washing role that obviously the game itself or any improvement that Jason might or might not be making within the organization has here to try to wash away the things that had happened previously. So what role do Ron and Jason have here and how are they thought of uh, through the people that you talk to for this story? I mean, the team sent us a statement from Jason specifically um, saying, I mean, as you pointed out, it's more than a thousand words long. And um, there, there are various folks who uh, give us quotes um, supporting Snyder, supporting the team, and, and Wright has authority to make the decisions. Um, but there are other sources who are saying, and frankly, call him a figurehead. Um, I do want to say as part of the team, the, the team spokesperson and, and a variety of other people that provided comment um, on behalf of Snyder are denying uh, much of what we've been told by our sources. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important, in case I haven't said it, is that um, a commander spokesperson and outside lawyers denied that Snyder has hired or authorized these private investigators to track team owners or league executives, including Goodell. Um, and that he, or that the spokesperson has also denied that Snyder said that the owners hate each other because there is, there, there's a quote at the top of our story where we have Snyder himself says to someone, the NFL is a mafia. All the owners hate each other. And another owner responded to that quote saying, that's not true. All the owners hate Dan. Right. 
Um, so Snyder's spokesperson says he's never said that the owners hate each other and, and calls the assertion simply ridiculous and utterly false. So I'm curious what you do when, as a reporter and an investigative reporter who has, you've worked on so many important things over your career, this certainly included, when you have people that just lie to you, like boldly lie to you, and you know it, you have the goods, you have the documents. You know, I think one of the ones that's really been off-putting over the past week um, is the denial of this like opposition research, uh, as Congress called it, the dossier. Uh, and Snyder's lawyers like, we never did that. We were doing this other thing. And then Congress, as had already put out in June as part of their release of information, like, we have the dossier. We've seen it. So as an investigative reporter, as you try to make sense and put things into context and present an accurate picture of what is happening, what do you do when one of the main participants or representatives of one of the main participants just boldly lie about certain things? Well, I... I I have throughout my entire career followed the idea of being tough but fair and asking tough questions and and digging in deep and looking hard and talking to as many people as you can and pulling documents and data and trying to paint the most complete picture and not just take one person's word for it. Um, And I think this story is an example of that. We talked to more than a dozen government officials um, for just the stadium part. You know, we spoke to more than 30 people. We're not just taking what one person said. We're we're building a, a complete picture here, as much or I should say, as complete a picture as we on the outside can can paint. Um, at the same time, we have to listen to what uh, Snyder's spokespeople are saying. And then we deliver it to you. And I think for me, as someone who has lived in this town most of her life, grew up watching this team go to Super Bowls, watching FedEx be this shiny new stadium and slowly start to decay, watching and covering and interviewing, because folks may not know this, I used to work for Fox 5, and then after that I worked for NBC4 Mm -hmm. as an investigative reporter. And I, I also would go out there and I'd go interview fans, you know, tailgating and being frustrated over whatever the headline of the week was that week. So for me, as someone who has talked to so many fans, I think what your listeners should take away from this is that they have power they may not even understand. Those letters to the lawmakers made a huge difference. And those lawmakers received so many letters, the stadium deal fell apart in Virginia. Um, You're more than just fans, you're voters. And if you feel strongly, make your voice heard. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point. I have two more questions for you, and one kind of touches on that. I want to save that one uh, for last, though. But uh, when you talk about some of the interference that he ran in these investigations or is alleged to have run during these investigations, the private investigators, all that kind of stuff, do you think that any of that could get him in trouble with either the league or legally? Could he get in trouble, to, especially if one of the investigations he messed with was Congress? One of the things I'm really interested to see will be what comes out about his um, testimony with Congress in July of the summer. Folks may remember that he um was in Europe and uh, folks may remember people were tracking his yacht while Roger Goodell was testifying on 
Capitol Hill and Snyder, through his lawyers, declined to testify mm-hmm. um, and then went back and forth. I reported on it extensively over the next several weeks um, about whether he would accept the subpoena or not. So he eventually did talk to congressional investigators. And there is um, a transcript of that. And it's in the committee's possession. I will be very interested to see if the committee or anyone else makes allegations of whether he was truthful um, during his deposition. Um, and forgive me, I don't want to say deposition during his testimony. You got to be real careful about which words you use. Right. Um, as you and I know, folks can get in trouble for not telling the truth. Yeah. If you tell the truth, you can't get in trouble. Um, so I would be, I would, I, I'm watching to see if people make those kinds of allegations. Um, I'm watching to see what Congress thinks about Bruce Allen's testimony. You know, he, he, uh, has not responded to media requests for interviews and he has been at the center of much of Snyder's wrath, according to the Congress. And, um, he was Congress also has now interviewed him or I should say congressional investigators have now also interviewed him. So those are things that I'm watching. I'm, I'm watching what comes out from their testimony. I'll be very interested to see that. Yeah. And as, what Congress does release from that. I mean, Congress doesn't have to release anything. It's 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 their prerogative. They can release sections. They can release the whole thing. They have released testimony of some of the folks that have been deposed and some of the people that have voluntarily testified. Um, but in theory, they don't ever have to release it. Right. Uh, I also know, uh, that you can't have a lawyer do something for you that you can't do yourself because it's illegal. You can't just have a lawyer do something and and then be like, oh, it wasn't me. Um, so (laughs) with the private investigators, uh, and some of that stuff, if there was like witness intimidation, I'm, I'm pretty interested to see if there's any of that, that were to come out. And we will continue to report on this as we learn about it. Obviously. I mean, it's something that we think is important. We think people should know about and, I mean, that's the whole point of why we did the story is we're trying to answer the questions we know fans and uh, folks who love football care about. Definitely. Tisha Thompson from ESPN, the story uh, with Seth Wickersham and Don Van Nata out this morning on Dan Snyder. And Tisha, I will wrap up with this question. There is clearly a lot of momentum rolling towards something. The question is, of course, like what? But I, I know you don't know that answer as of right now. Otherwise, you guys would have put that in the story if it was definitive that there was going to be a vote, if there was definitive that Congress was going to do X, Y, or Z. But like, what to you were kind of the most likely options? And is one of these potential outcomes that that momentum just slows, stops, and eventually people look back and it's like, wow, I can't believe nothing happened there and Snyder continues to own the team? The people who have the power are the owners and there is a owner's meeting that's happening on Tuesday in New York and it will be, I I don't want to speculate. I'm not into the business of predicting. I can just tell you there's an owner's meeting coming on Tuesday and what we have been told through our sources is to watch the conversation about debt waivers. It's a, you know, it, it sounds like a technical thing. It sounds like something you may not want to pay attention to. But our understanding is some owners think that this may be the financial maneuver where they could force Snyder's hand because they don't grant him a debt waiver for a stadium. Debt waiver is the new Al Capone's taxes is what you're telling us. 
you said that. <laughs> I, that's true. I said that, not you. Uh, Tisha Thompson, a lifelong DCU resident, uh, did a great job when she was reporting locally for Fox 5 and uh, NBC4, has now gone on to ESPN and continued to do fantastic work. Uh, Tisha, is there anything else besides the story itself around this? I know Pablo uh, had uh, Don on ESPN Daily that people can check out. That was very good. Anything else that uh, you want folks to be aware of in terms of coverage? You know, with the news business, you never want to tell people when something's coming because something else could happen. But right <laughs> now, my understanding is that I'm going to be on SportsCenter uh, at 6 o'clock tonight with more. Okay. Well, we will look forward to that. Uh, Tisha, thanks so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can uh, we can have you back at some point if there's more to talk about in the near future. Thanks for having me. Hoffman Show on the Team 980. We're always live on the free Odyssey app. And uh, I welcome in now Melanie Coburn, uh, who is a name by now that you certainly know. She has been one of the forces behind the push to release the Wilkinson report and to continue to push the change that uh, she hopes to see at the commanders where she used to work. And Melanie, uh, your name popped up uh, in the letter last week. And um, I know it has been a really rough week for you. uh, And and obviously it's been a really rough couple of years, Uh, not to laugh, but sometimes you laugh so you don't cry. Um, So I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Craig. And yes, you got to laugh sometimes not to cry. That's for sure. It is. It has certainly been in uh, theater of the absurd, and it's different when you're watching the show versus being in it, so to speak. So when you saw the letter last week and then heard John Brownlee, uh, Dan Snyder's lawyer, on the radio, what was your reaction to all of that? Well, initially, it's exactly everything I've feared in getting involved with this in the first place, right? You know, I, I came into this to seek justice for the women that were in the videos that were created under my nose at the alleged command of Dan Snyder. And, um, you know, I, I've been pushing for the two words I've been saying for over two years, transparency and accountability. And we did not get that with the findings of the Wilkinson report being buried. Um, and then to come out with a letter like that, attacking my integrity and my character and saying things that are complete lies about me and military tours and calendar shoots and sponsors, um, Last week was obviously very hurtful, um, but also to me very obvious uh, that they are just, you know, attacking us. It's a form of intimidation. It's exactly why people don't come forward against Dan Snyder. It's historically what he's done. He's done it to the city paper. He's done it to journalists. He's done it to former employees. And we now see what he's capable of. And this article that came out today further proves that it's not just me. It's not just the city paper. It's it's the owners and potentially Roger Goodell as well. Yeah, when you've got the billionaire scared, uh, it, it, and who knows, he might be bluffing on all of this, but they're certainly scared enough um, that they have not moved forward so far. Um, I mean, how does it feel to kind of be at the forefront, but also in the middle, if you will, like you, you, I would imagine you read a report like today and you see some of the things that have happened. You, you get to learn more about the stadium process falling apart. And there's got to be a piece of you. That's like, wow, we did something here. We are actually making a difference. Well, at the same time, <laughs> feeling that those threats and that intimidation. And um, I can't imagine what it feels like to have private investigators investing in you. So like, what does it feel to both be pushing and accomplishing while also being in the middle of this storm? 
It's such a mix of emotions, right? Like I, I'm so grateful for all the local politicians who've supported us and who are pushing for truth and transparency that we've been asking for. Um, and I think them sort of pulling out of the stadium deal shows they are in support of us and they do want the same things that we want. Um, seeing that the owners are, you know, the, I guess, anonymous owner who mentioned that Snyder getting a stadium would make this go away is just, it's abhorrent. I mean, it's awful. It's, it's disgusting that money is more important than women and humans and people that have been abused and exploited and violated over the last 22 years. Um, so that was very unfortunate and very disappointing. Um, I have participated in all of these various investigations, but it all boils down to the Wilkinson investigation. That was the most thorough. They, you know, they interviewed, they released the NDAs for that investigation. There was over 150 people that participated in that investigation. So if they have nothing to hide, I still am not quite understanding why Snyder wouldn't just release that report. Right. And obviously, as Melanie Coburn is our guest, um, that has long been my question uh, as a journalist. Um, nevertheless, as someone who cares about these issues as well, um, do you think that is still on the table? I mean, you guys, you, Megan, like you, you're wearing the shirt right now for those that are going to watch this on YouTube. Like, you know, the release of the report, it's a hashtag that kind of is an organizing function, but like functionally. Do you think that that is still on the table, that there could be something that that changes that? Or are, do you think realistically, you know, while it's still worth pushing for that we're relying on Congress, on the Mary Jo White investigation, on the AG investigations, um, that 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 is more likely to be the thing that where we learn something new about what happened? You know, I'm not certain. I don't know what will be in Mary Jo White's report. I know from my perspective, the things and the stories that I know are just criminal. I mean, he should not be in the position that he's in. And I am still hopeful that eventually down the road, someone will look into those videos and, and the criminal yeah. side of them. And we get true justice for, for what took place there. Um, but I'm not sure. I, 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 I don't know. I'm sure I'm very certain Beth Wilkinson wrote a report. There has to be even some sort of draft of a report. You're not that good of an attorney, that respected. Even John Brownlee said how, you know, highly regarded she was and what a thorough investigation she did. So he's saying these things, but he's not actually going to release that report. So you're very, you're contradicting yourself. If it was so thorough and it was so fair and she's respected, just release it. That's all you have to do. Makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. It makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Specific to the letter last week, they point to these emails that are like 20 years old. And I'm curious just like what that was like when you see that. And it's like, yeah, those are 20. I mean, obviously, they were taken out of context um, and, and all of that. So I'll, I'll let you kind of explain as much as you, you want to, like kind of the details there. But just to know that that's kind of, you know, same with the private investigators. What What's it feel like to have people essentially rummaging through your stuff, especially when it is is that far removed from like you're a mom, you, you've like, you've got a life now. And so what's it like to, to kind of have that 20 years ago being drug up and then put in the context that it was by them, which is not the context in which it existed. I mean, it's terrifying, but trying to pin the blame of sexualizing the cheerleaders on me is just, it, it's, it's a joke. I was not a director. They actually referred to me as a supervisor in the letter. I was a marketing person. I sold events and sponsorships trying to pin all that on me is just ridiculous. And then 
the email about the military wife, you know, I, I'm, I apologize for making fun of her spelling and, you know, looking back, that was not a nice thing to do. I didn't say it to her. And I obviously like the military appreciation tours were my favorite part of cheering. We giving, you know, giving back, visiting, giving goodwill to troops, men and women all over the world was, you know, my most cherished memories of my cheerleading days. But to take a photo of me from a tour in November of 2002 and attach it to a letter from, I think it was September of 2005, and try to say that I was making advances on married men is just not true. I actually didn't do any military tours in 2005. So you can see how they sort of distort things and put photos in places. And, and that photo, by the way, was during a dance routine where we asked for volunteers to come up and do a swing dance with us. And I'll never forget that particular tour because that man was an obvious dancer. He had been doing swing dancing for many years. And if you could see in the photograph, I'm almost shocked because he was like throwing me around the stage and was an incredible dancer. And it was so fun. And it was all in, in good fun. That's what it was. We were there to bring smiles to their faces and to show them how much we appreciated them. We were not hanging all over them and doing the things that that woman had wrote, written about. Um, but, you know, I respect her and I, I know what a difficult life that is to be home when your husband's deployed raising kids. Like there's a few cheerleaders that I cheered with that married military men and they have children and their husbands are now deployed. I get it. I'm, I, I respect it. And, you know, I'm sorry for making the, the comment about the spelling, but everything else in that letter about me was just untrue. And even the letter, I don't know if you read it about the calendar shoots um, and the person that was invited to come on the calendar shoots, I was directed to invite suite owners to the calendar shoots. We fought back against that. We didn't want that mm. to happen, but we were told to do it to offset costs of airfare and other costs that the calendar shoot um, brought with it. So we had to bring those people. And that email, even Donald Wells's words in that email are saying exactly what we've been saying, how we didn't want them to come. So it's almost like, I'm surprised they put that email in there. Um, but there was just a lot of confusing, distorted things in that letter. And I was appreciative for Lisa's response to that. And I think her letter really negated a lot of that. Melanie Coburn with us on the Team 980. Uh, gaslighting is a term that has become much more known in, in the last decade, certainly the last five years. Um, and I certainly think that applies to some of the things that that have happened here. And, you know, I, as a journalist, like I want to try to be fair and asking the questions, but like I've also done a lot of shows. People know where I stand on this stuff by now. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that I don't have opinions in, in asking you questions in this regard. Um, but one of the things that I have been very vocal about is I think it's abhorrent that they will acknowledge that some bad stuff happened and then continue to be as aggressive as they are towards you and, and the other women that came forward, especially who suffered in that toxic workplace. Like that means if you admit that the workplace was toxic, that means there are victims and you are certainly one of them. And not to mention, I think it's interesting too, in talking to you for the last 10 minutes that you continually go back, especially to the cheerleaders in the videos and, and like as them being as violated and as, as uh, much of victims as anybody else. And, and that long windup leads to this question. If at the time the Washington Post report comes out, Dan had said, yeah, we really messed up. I'm really sorry. We're going to do everything we can to fix it. I will meet with people and try to make it right. As opposed to the way he's acted in the two years since. Like, where do you think we are today? And, and would that have been remotely acceptable in your eyes? 
I mean, I think if Dan has taken any accountability for anything over the past 22 years, we wouldn't be in this place. That's the problem is that he blames everyone else, including me, for the toxic culture that existed there. And that's just not true. There's only one common denominator over 22 years, and it's not me. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think if the NFL had been more transparent with the report and Dan would have come out and apologized, I think this we wouldn't be here. To be perfectly honest, I think if he hadn't leaked the emails in October of last year, we wouldn't be here either. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, at which now we'll see where, where here winds up leading to because the Mary Jo Ed investigation goes specifically to him in 2009. And that might wind up opening a can of worms that he could have left closed. Um, and by the way, good. That's something that I don't know that has been said often enough today is like, if he does have dirt on other owners and it blows up other people, like, good. If they're awful, so awful, like let them explode, so to speak, proverbially speaking. Um, the other constant, though, over 22 years that I really wanted to ask you about is Tanya. Um, I would imagine in your role, you actually would have interacted with Tanya, or at least she would have been around for whether it's marketing events or cheer events or, you know, I'm sure those two areas in which you worked interacted a lot with some of the Think Pink stuff. What were your impressions of Tanya while you worked there? And, and what have you made of her escalation and role now? You know, I actually did not interact with her very much. I only really interacted with her for the Think Pink because we would have cheerleaders go around to each of the gates and pass out the ribbons with her. Um, I believe she had done some charitable foundation stuff. I, I had interacted with her a little bit, but very, very little. Um, and, you know, I, I, I looked up to her. I thought what she did with the Think Pink campaign was great. Um, but in terms of having a presence and being a part of the culture, she was never there. That, that was, you know, and I, you know, she was there at, at probably the Super Bowl events or, you know, at some of the other sort of high profile events, but not really around with us. You know, we were sort of in our own little, I tell people we were in our own little bubble. We had the studio underneath the stadium where the owners parked on game days. So I didn't even work at Redskins Park. I We were very separate, and, and they did that for a reason. Obviously, you know, the whole player, non-player cheerleader fraternization rule, um, which ultimately got two cheerleaders fired and not a player, which we all know. Um, yeah. They kept us very separate. And I think, you know, personally, it, it protected me. It, like, kept me out of a lot of situations that probably could have been pretty bad. Um, but, yeah, she, in terms of being around on a regular basis or contributing to the culture... I don't, I can't testify to that, but I do know, I mean, she knows her husband. She, she married him. She's lived with him and worked with him for this many years. And she, you know, sort of like, I don't know you, I'm sure you read the Schefter article, the the one podcast she did last year after becoming sort of the acting owner um, or acting CEO was throw us under the bus. You know, it was, we were ridiculous and the media can say anything and our family's gone through so much and you know, just having that woe is me attitude. I just think that they're, they have, they lack self-awareness and they lack any kind of empathy. And she actually said like, oh, we've apologized numerous times. And that's just not true. I have never received an apology. No one ever received any, any response after the Wilkinson investigation wrapped up. And as a matter of fact, my attorneys were asked for um, a meeting with Lisa Friel, like we were wanting answers. We wanted to understand why, you know, why it was buried, um, when that's not sort of how they represented it to us. And, you know, Tanya, 
also not accepting her role in sort of that and, and still playing the we're a, we're a victim role. So to be clear, uh, any kind of transfer of ownership to Tanya or anything like that would be completely unsatisfactory. Yeah. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so the Snyders have said that there is a uh, grand conspiracy between like some well-funded something between uh, I don't even know who. I guess that's kind of the question. Uh, so as as a part of this grand conspiracy, Melanie, um, who is funding you and who are you collaborating with? Oh, I wish I was funded. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> there's no funding. I'm sure you're aware of seen our fundraisers for the Legal Defense Fund, the National Legal Defense Fund, which is a part of the National Women's Law Center. And they have supported our um, working with banks and cats over the years. But I, you know, this is mostly pro bono from what I understand. And I, there's no funding. I turned down hush money in February of 2021. That's the only money that's ever been offered to me. Um, I will say, I think, you know, I got to point out that the fact that the woman who was assaulted on his plane um, declined a seven-figure settlement or, you know, additional money to keep her quiet and not participate in Mary Jo White, which I think is incredible. And I just, I want to tell her how much I appreciate that. And I know how hard that was to turn down. Um, and it, just, it makes me emotional because not a lot of people have come forward because they're afraid of everything that has happened and transpired and what we, we know what he's capable of. And He's just shown it time and time again. So jokes aside, that's actually where I wanted to, to end with you is like, how did the idea to get together and speak and and try to fight back originate? Because Snyder is notoriously litigious. He, his, his behavior, I think bully is a good word, you know, by by the dictionary definition to describe it and the way he's acted in the past. Um, yet you and Megan and, and some other folks came forward like. Where did the idea originate and, and how did this uh, this movement at this point start and, and, and start to gain steam? It all started with the videos for me personally. Um, mm. when, when those came out, I sort of became the de facto organizer of the ladies um, because I was there when they were there and I know them all. And I was also a decade lead in the Alumni Association. I had everyone's emails. So mm. I emailed everyone from those first those two videos that, you know, because there's more that we've found out. We just don't have evidence of them yet physically. But anyway, they, um, I helped organize them and I helped them. I told them they need to get legal counsel. And then I removed myself from that, that whole process. And they did ultimately go and mediate and settle. And, you know, I, I, I applaud them for that. They just wanted to get it over with. They wanted to squash it. These, these, I've said this before, these women are daughters, they're sisters, they're mothers, they're teachers, they're attorneys. I mean, they're incredible women who have families and they have lives and livelihoods. And I, they can't, they can't tell their story now, but I get text messages and I get phone calls and I hear their trauma and how scared they are, where those videos are, who's seen them, are they going to pop up? You know, these are real big fears that they have. And that has been the fuel to my fire. I am here to fight for them, for justice, for transparency and accountability. Those, we need it. They need it. That's a, that's a powerful note to end on. So we'll end it there. Melanie, thank you so much. Uh, I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, what you guys are doing is, is incredibly admirable. Um, and uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming on the radio to talk about it. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate you. 